Good afternoon, brethren. It's a privilege to be here with you on a beautiful Sabbath day. It's nice to have the brass ensemble here to uh, provide some uh, stirring music for us. It was also very inspiring to hear that special music. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite songs that gets get your blood stirring. Uh, of course, it's all about the theme of, of this time of year, these spring holy days. You know, the spring holy days are a reminder an annual reminder of the important steps in the plan of God. The Passover, the pictures, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. Last night, which is not a holy day, but it is a night to be much observed. You, know, you can read about that in the latter part of Exodus chapter 12, that it was the night that the Israelites left Egypt, the first night of freedom, after the screws had been put down on them by the Egyptians. And it must have been a very thrilling experience to walk out of Egypt, to leave slavery behind. God softened the most powerful nation on earth at that time with miracles. And yet the Israelites had to walk out of Egypt. There were things that they had to do, which pictures the time that and how God works in our life. You know, God opened your mind and he opened mine supernaturally, to begin to understand the truth of God. And yet we had to make certain efforts to leave a lifestyle, leave a way of life, begin to live differently. And that's part of the plan of God. Days of Unleavened Bread that we will be going through this coming week, again, pictures something that we have to do, looking for leaven in our lives, getting rid of those things. I thought it was interesting. <clears throat> the other day I was going through this book entitled The Feast of the Lord, and it's written by two individuals that came out of a Jewish background. And they described the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it's basically from a historical standpoint. It says the Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder of God's miraculous deliverance from the Egyptian bondage. So they're looking back, and yet we are looking right now. You know, we remember what God did with Israel. But we have to look at our lives today and look for the leaven in our lives so that we can become like Jesus Christ. A little later in this book, it mentions that uh, Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, he didn't fulfill it. You know, he was unleavened. He was a perfect example. But we have to also look at our lives if you'll turn very quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because what we are doing <clears throat> by keeping the Passover, keeping the days of unleavened bread, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. You might just mention, note in your, in your notes in Luke chapter 3 how Jesus Christ went up to Jerusalem, kept the Passover, which was his custom. That's how he was raised to keep the Passover. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is talking with a church that's primarily made up of Gentiles. And he's telling them there were problems in the church that are talked about in the first several verses. But in verse 7, <clears throat> he says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. 
since you are unleavened. Well, they weren't unleavened. You just read the first five verses. There were plenty of things floating around in the church there that were sins, sinful attitudes, sinful actions. They were not unleavened. But Paul says we need to purge out the old leaven, the old things that you're doing. Get rid of those things. It appears that Paul wrote this book during the days of unleavened bread. And they would have been unleavened physically, but they weren't unleavened spiritually. The first five, six, seven verses tell us that. They had to get rid of those things. But it appears that Paul wrote the book during the days of unleavened bread, because in 1 Corinthians 11, he talks about keeping the Passover. And what we have to do is we keep the Passover. So these people weren't unleavened. Notice in verse 2, he says, you're puffed up. Again, this is the play on words. They were leavened in a spiritual sense. They had to get rid of those things. But he tells these people, a Gentile church in verse 8, therefore let us keep the feast. Not with the old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They were keeping the feast. I was checking another commentary, actually this morning. The uh, Expositor's Bible Commentary. It was very interesting what the, the man said that wrote it. He said, this phrase, therefore let us keep the feast, actually refers to just let us live a Christian life. But that's not what the book says. It says, let us keep the feast. You know, Paul kept the feast. The early church kept the feast. Jesus Christ kept the feast. They'll be kept in the coming kingdom of God. Zechariah 14. So it's interesting the twist that various people put on these scriptures. That Paul is telling them, let us keep the feast. That's why we're keeping it today. But this period of the Passover and this period of the days of unleavened bread, we are instructed to examine ourselves. We read this scripture on the Passover. Let's look at it quickly right now. In 1 Corinthians 11, part of the same book, Paul carries through the theme. He was telling the people there in the church in 1 Corinthians 5, there were sinful attitudes and actions. 1 Corinthians 1, he talks about factions and divisions in the church. They weren't unleavened. They had a lot of carnal attitudes. But in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, says, Therefore, whoever eats this bread, drinks this cup, partakes of the Passover in an unworthy manner, is guilty of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ, or the Lord. But let a man or let a person examine himself or herself and let them eat and drink of this cup. Whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, again, he repeats this for emphasis, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Down in verse 31, it says, if we would judge ourselves, if we would examine ourselves, search ourselves. Again, the Jews have kind of a ritual where they actually, they will clean their house and do other things, but then they'll, they'll put little pieces of leaven around different places, and they go search for those things. Uh, and the one fellow that wrote this book, he says, as a boy, I remember and it, was, it was always exciting going through the house with a candle and looking for the leaven. It's a teaching experience. But we don't hide leaven from ourselves. Our job is to look for the leaven in a spiritual sense. And sometimes we can get carried away cleaning the house and doing all these things. I've used this example before. We had a young lady that came into the church. Her husband was not in the church, and he had a big library. Somebody told her, you know, you better go through all those books because he might be eating a cookie. 
over one of those books and you'll never know it. So you'd better go through every page. And she called and she was in tears. She said, he's got thousands of books. <laughs> and I'm going to have to go through every page. I said, no, that's, that's not what it's about. You know, getting rid of the leaven is a physical exercise, but the real focus is we've got to look internally. We've got to look internally and get rid of attitudes and actions that don't belong. I think we understand that we are to examine ourselves during this Days of Unleavened Bread. But what I'd like to do in the sermon today is to encourage you to think bigger, to think bigger beyond yourself. In 1 Corinthians 12, just maybe even on the same page in your Bible, Paul is talking about the church and members of the church. Verse 12, he says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members uh, of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. So it's talking about Christ and that the body, the church, is the body of Christ. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. What I'd like you to think about today is about the church that you belong to, the church that you are attending. And I want to ask you a couple of questions. God is calling new people into the church today. We've had a number of people, brand new people, have been baptized over the last several months. God is also calling people back into contact with his church who've drifted away, gone in different directions, uh, and they're coming back because in many cases they find out what is out there is not what they thought was out there. What I'd like you to think about is what do they encounter when they come back to church? What do they encounter when they come into the church for the first time? What kind of church do they encounter? I remember years ago, a gentleman came back to one of the local congregations. He was known because he used to attend there. Pulled into the parking lot. guy met him in the parking lot and said, What are you doing here? What are you doing here? He said, Well, I was coming back to church, but maybe I'm in the wrong place. Because it was a put-off. So what I'd like you to do is think about think about things on a bigger scale today, a bigger plane. And let me ask two questions. What kind of church are we? What kind of church are we as the church of God? Are we a warm, welcoming, loving, understanding, forgiving church? Or are we kind of cool and reserved and critical and judgmental? Again, I'm not encouraging you to look at other people. (laughs) Because individually, individually we reflect something. And then collectively we reflect something. Now what we need to do is look internally to make sure that we are reflecting what God wants us to reflect. And if we do that, the church will reflect those things. Here we talk about the government of God in the church today. 
And I would like you to think about how do you reflect the government of God? How do you reflect the government of God? How do you represent the government of God? How do you function within the government of God? I know what they say, but I've got my own ideas. Well, how do we reflect the government of God? When you're in a position of responsibility, are you kind? Are you gentle? Are you understanding? Are you patient? Are you firm when you need to be, but not vindictive? Or are you imperious? I'm in charge because this is the government of God. Whoa. Let <laughs> I me mean, think about these things because we individually reflect something. And then we collectively reflect something. What I'd like you to do is actually step outside the box today. And put yourselves in the position of someone else, someone new coming into the church, someone coming back. And try and, and understand how they're thinking, what they perceive. Listen to, to comments, maybe from friends and relatives. And think about this question, what kind of church are we? Again, not judging someone else. But think about the collective reflection that we have. How do others see you and how do others see your church? What kind of image do they perceive? Again, is it judgmental? Is it understanding? Is it kind and gentle? Or is it... <laughs> think about it. Think about it. How does the body of Jesus Christ appear to them? To someone on the outside? Think about it. <clears throat> That's the first question. What kind of church are we? But I want to focus really on the second question. What kind of church should we be? What kind of church should we be? What kind of reflection should we generate? What does God want his church to be like? Yeah, I think if we would ask everybody in the room, what is your perception of the church? What do you think the church should be like? You'd probably have certain explanations, certain conclusions. But what does God say his church should be like? That's what I want to focus on today. What values does Jesus Christ want his body to reflect? And if we can think on these things and make whatever adjustments we may need to make individually, and as we do that, <laughs> the church collectively is going to reflect something. So let's talk about some things that relate to the church. But again, we're talking about ourselves. Let's look at the big picture for just a minute. I want to put the sermon in the context of the overall plan of God. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus makes the statement, I am going to build my church. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell or the grave are not going to prevail against it. You know, back in the 30s, Mr. Armstrong read that scripture and he realized if this scripture is true, then God's church must be somewhere today. If that scripture is true, then God's church must be here somewhere. 
And he began looking for a church that kept the Sabbath, a church that kept the holy days, a church that understood what the gospel was, not just about Jesus Christ, but about the coming kingdom of God. And he began looking, and it led him to the churches of God. And he began to realize they didn't have everything right and took a number of years to put a number of things back in place. But Jesus said, I will build my church, and it's going to be around. You are here because you feel that you've encountered that church. In John 6, verses 44 and 65, again, you're familiar with these scriptures. Jesus makes the statement, no one can come to me unless they're called. Unless God opens their mind to begin to understand the plan and the purpose of God. You know, my mom was a Sunday school teacher. My dad was an elder. I tried to explain to them the things I was coming to understand. They just didn't. They understood it intellectually, but that was about it. I remember one time that uh, my mom and dad came to one of the Holy Day services. I think it was on trumpets. I gave a sermon in the morning on uh, Germany and what was going to happen. And I mentioned to my dad at lunch, I said, Dad, it's going to be a long day. You know, you can go home if you want. And I won't use his language, but he said, you scared the whatever out of me this morning. (laughs) He said, I've got to come back this afternoon and find out what's going to happen. (laughs) So he came back that afternoon, and the other minister told the rest of the story on trumpets. And the next day, it was like nothing ever happened. You know, he understood intellectually, but it wasn't something that really moved him. You know, if God has opened your mind to understand his plan, his purpose, the purpose of human life, that's a miracle. Because he's not doing that for everyone today, which is what we're told in John six forty four and 65, that unless God calls you, unless God reaches into your mind, adjusts the dials, it's not going to make a lot of sense. God's going to be calling other people later. In John 15, we read this at the Passover. John chapter 15. And verse 16. Again, Jesus is reminding his disciples of the incredible calling that they've been given. He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. God reached into your heart and into your mind to choose you for his reasons. Sometimes we can spin our wheels and why did God call me? I wonder why God called me. I wouldn't worry about that. Just be thankful that he did. (laughs) You can waste an awful lot of time worrying, well, I don't deserve to be called, or I do deserve to be called. (laughs) Now, Jesus told his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Because he is putting his church together. He's calling people into the church for reasons. And we can sit around and wonder, I don't know why he called her. I don't know why he called him. God has a plan. And he's got a purpose. And this is what Jesus tells us. That I chose you, you didn't choose me. When we're called, we have to repent and change and grow. Again, Jesus Christ is the head of the body. We are members of the body. 
And we've got to reflect Jesus Christ. And Dr. Meredith likes the scripture in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. But this is how we reflect Jesus Christ. Paul mentions here, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That is, if we're studying the scriptures, striving to live by every word of God, acting as Jesus Christ would act, then we'll reflect the values and would reflect the perspectives of Jesus Christ. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is how we will reflect Jesus Christ whenever we strive to live according to the instructions that he gives us. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, another aspect here. Again, this is what we need to be pointing towards. If we want to reflect Jesus Christ, if we want to reflect the, the values that God wants us to and to be the kind of church that he wants us to be. Philippians 2.5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. As we develop the mind of Jesus Christ, we're going to reflect the character, reflect the perspectives of Jesus Christ, and we will become the church of God that God wants us to become, if this is our goal. Okay, what is it that God is looking for in his church? What are the, the, the qualities that God wants to see in his church that Jesus Christ wants to see in his body. I want to go through five of these important qualities. They're simple, but I think we need to think about them and ask ourselves, do I reflect these qualities? How can I reflect these qualities? First quality I want to talk about is that God wants a loving church. He wants a church that exhibits love, outgoing concern, we read the scripture on the Passover in John 13. This was part of the discussion that Jesus Christ had with his disciples the night before he was crucified. In John 13, beginning in verse 34, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you should also love one another. And by this, by this quality, by this quality, by this sign, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, where we care for one another. And the announcement was talking about the needs of some of our brethren in other countries. We could probably add another half a dozen countries, the one that was mentioned, because those needs are real. We have an abundance here that sometimes we, we take for granted. That others just don't have and never will have in this life. And we need to be thankful for that. But this is what Jesus was telling his disciples. This is the quality. This is the quality I'm looking for. This is the bottom line in that sense. That you have love for one another. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. In 1 John chapter 4. 
You know, John defines, it's interesting, John mellows as he gets older, I guess as most of us do, because our get up and go has got up and going. In First John chapter 4, <clears throat> verses 7 through 11, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you go back up one page or so in 1 John chapter 3, this is our goal. This is what we should be striving for. This is why God emphasizes these qualities. John is talking about the purpose of human life. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. You know, our children grow up to become like we are. They talk like we do. They walk like we do. They act like we do, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. <laughs> but they're little imitations of mom and dad. This is we are growing up to become like God. That is our function. That's our purpose. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, but it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now notice verse 3. And everyone who has this hope of becoming part of God's family purifies himself or herself. They get rid of the leaven, just as he is pure. We've been called to develop this quality of love so that we can become like God. In John 15, verse 14, we'll just jump back here again to what Christ was talking about at the Passover. <clears throat> Actually, is actually 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I think sometimes we can assume, well, we keep the commandments of God, therefore we're a loving church. And you're not keeping the commandments of God. <laughs> we can become very judgmental, which we've got to be careful of. In Matthew 22, you can jot that in your notes, verses 36 to 40, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your heart. And we show God that we love him and we keep the commandments. But he says the next commandment is also important. That is to love your neighbor. And we show love to our neighbors by keeping the last six commandments. But we don't want to assume, well, I keep the commandments of God, therefore I'm a loving person. We could be very judgmental and keep the commandments of God. And this is what we need to, we, we need to think about what we reflect. If we're keeping the commandments of God and also loving our neighbor, what kind of reflection will we create? What kind of perspective will we create? Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 very quickly. A couple of things here. <clears throat> In Matthew 5, many people think today the laws of God have been done away with, and yet Jesus makes the statement. 
in Matthew 5, verse 17, is don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. And the word means to complete, fill to the full. If you have written in your margin Isaiah 42, verse 21, it's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, 21. It says he will come and magnify the law. You know, our grand, one of our grandchildren was playing with a magnifying glass last night. At the night to be much observed, she was running around the house looking at things because it magnifies things. doesn't do away with anything. It magnifies it. If you read through the rest of Matthew chapter 5, uh, case in point, uh, verse 21, says, You have heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders shall be in danger of the judgment. That's breaking the letter of the law. But he said, I say unto you, whoever is angry with his brother. I don't like her. That's why I sit on the other side of the church. I get here later because she gets here earlier. I just don't want to have anything to do with her. Or if we run down people. Well, have you heard about him? Have you heard about her? This is breaking the spirit of the law. And it's described as Jesus said, it's just just as bad as murder. This is how Christ magnified the law. Yes, it's, it's wrong to kill people. and Nobody would argue about that today. It's wrong to steal. Nobody would argue about that. But if you run down people, that's breaking the spirit of the law, which is not love. So Jesus talked about these things. He came to expand the meaning of the laws of God. In Matthew chapter 6, another way of showing love <clears throat> In this prayer that was to be an instructive prayer for Christ's disciples, I think it's in Luke where it's the disciples said, teach us to pray. God, show, or Jesus, tell us, show us how to pray. And then Christ goes through this. This isn't something we just repeat wrote like many uh, churches do today. But this is a model that we should follow in our prayers. You know, addressing God as our Father in heaven. It was interesting listening to the opening prayer in another culture, another language, it's Father God, where we talk about God, our Father. And it's just a different way of expressing things, which I think adds uh, an interesting twist to our lives. You know, my wife and I went to, uh, I think it was to uh, Minehead for the feast uh, a number of years ago. And it was about, oh, I don't know, 50 or 60 people there from Austria. They spoke German. So everything was being translated into German. So the minister would tell a joke, we would laugh. And about 60 seconds later, <laughs> the whole center section <laughs> of the congregation would laugh because it was finally translated into their language so that they could understand. It was, you have this ripples of laughter all around. <laughs> but that's just, you know, the, the different ways that, uh, that we function. But in this model prayer, one of the things that we were to ask about in verse 12, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We kept the Passover because we were looking to Jesus Christ to forgive our sins. But then we have to be willing to forgive others and to have a forgiving attitude. And as if that wasn't enough in the prayer, then Jesus enlarges on this in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men or women or people their trespasses, 
neither will your father forgive your trespasses. So again, this is one of the things that God is looking for in a loving church is that we need to be forgiving of others. I mentioned this in a sermon recently. Sometimes we say, well, I don't know. I, I just can't understand how they could do that. And I think my comment was we gave ourselves away in the first couple of words. I can't understand because you weren't there in their shoes. So this is another aspect of love, being willing to forgive, not holding on to things. I remember when I first came to Mississippi to go to graduate school. This was back in the middle 60s. They were still fighting the Civil War down there. Because you could buy these little ashtrays of this grizzled Confederate soldier with this you know, growth of beard. And he said, blank, no, I ain't forgetting. In other words, we're hanging on to this. We're still fighting the war down here. Now, they were making money selling souvenirs. And they were playing on the Civil War. But it did depict an attitude. I was told whenever I first moved there, they said, well, they, they're going to tell you. You all come back. But don't you dare go back right away. Because <laughs> it's just something we say down here. But no, I found the people in Mississippi very warm. And they thought I was a good guy as long as they get the Yankee out of me. <laughs> but again, what God is talking about, we need to be forgiving. We need to be forgiving, letting go of things. Let's look at some other aspects. In verse, uh, chapter 7, first couple of verses, it says, Judge not that you be not judged. Now, the word here means don't condemn other people. As later on it talks about uh, you've got to beware of false prophets. So you've got to make judgments. You've got to be able to make decisions. But we don't want to be condemning other people. Well, I don't know how they could do that. or I don't, know, I, I don't understand this or that. But we don't want to be judging other people. Let's finally look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Again, I think it's interesting that Paul goes into this subject because there were problems in the church in Corinth. <clears throat> Very carnal people in some cases, but they were learning the truth. They were coming out of a lifestyle that was not the best. When you read about Corinth, you can understand that. In 1 Corinthians 13, <clears throat> Paul talks about the greatest gift, which is love. And in the world today, we have different ideas. When you hear the word love, what is love? Well, it's this romantic feeling. I get goosebumps, you know. And somewhere across a crowded room, you'll see somebody, and lights go on and off. And bells start to ring. When I was in high school, there was a song, What is Love? It was five feet of heaven in a ponytail. <laughs> but that's not what Paul was talking about see we're, we're influenced by our culture we hear a word and we have automatic definitions but this is the definition we need to go back to though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love in other words if I can give powerful inspiring sermons but if I don't have love, I become as a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Boing! That's not pleasant to listen to. It's irritating. It grates on you. 
But what Paul is saying is, if you don't have love, even though you're a great speaker, it's not going to go over. Though I have the gift of prophecy, I came into an area, and the person that had been there before me, all he did was talk about prophecy. And I knew that, so I started talking about principles of Christian living. And somebody came up and said, were you going to talk about prophecy? I said, haven't we had enough for a while? I said, maybe we should look at another subject. <clears throat> but Paul says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and all, have, have, I've got all kind of faith, I can remove mountains. But if I don't have love, I, I'm really nothing. This is how important this concept is. This is what God is looking for in his church. <clears throat> Down to verse 4, love suffers long. It's patient. It's patient. It doesn't jump to conclusions. It, it's kind. Love does not envy. How come he got ordained? And I have been here for 20 years, and I've never been noticed. Maybe there's a quality that's lacking. How come they got the coffee pot and I didn't? You know, men and women are affected by these things. <laughs> love doesn't envy. Love does not parade itself around. Well, I figured out why God called me. He couldn't afford to not call me. <laughs> it's not puffed up. Again, Paul is apparently writing during the days of unleavened bread, and this had meaning. Does not behave itself rudely. Don't you know who I am? It's, it's humble. Does not seek its own. Now, here's what I think. This is how the church really needs to function because I've got it all figured out. It's not provoked. It's not easily provoked. It doesn't fly off. Thinks no evil. In other words, it focuses on the positive as opposed to the negative. Does not rejoice in iniquity. You've you got to get something juicy. You know, Dr. Meredith mentioned an individual who carried a little black book around and kept a list of people's sins. It doesn't rejoice. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It endures. It takes it on the chin. It believes all things. It hopes all things. In other words, again, focusing on the positive. Love doesn't fail. It doesn't fail. Paul concludes this chapter or this section of Scripture in verse 13. He says, now abides faith, which is important, hope, which is important, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. What Paul is saying is love is an extremely important quality. And that's what he wants to see in his church. The second quality <clears throat> God wants to see specific fruits. Jesus Christ wants to see specific fruits in our lives. In John 15, again, what Christ was talking about <clears throat> at the Passover, the night before he was crucified, and he's going over fundamental things because he knew his disciples were going to get rattled the next day when they saw him crucified, put to death, saw him die. And the night before that happened, he went over a number of basic things so that they wouldn't be shaken, or if they did get shaken up, that 
they would have something they could go back to. In John 15, the first eight verses, he's telling his disciples, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser, the husbandman, the one who does the trimming. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. We might think, God, what are you doing this for? (laughs) I keep the Sabbath, I pray, and all this is happening in my life. And what he's probably saying is, that's good. I want you to grow some more. But do you have to do it this way? Jesus said that. Can this cup pass from me? Do we have to do it this way? Down in verse 4, he says, Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 8, just jumping down, it says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And if you bear that kind of fruit, you're going to be my disciples. What kind of fruit is he looking for? Paul mentions that in Galatians chapter 5. And he also tells us what he's not looking for, what he doesn't want to see in his church. And if we apply this personally, he doesn't want to see it in our lives because then it reflects negatively on the church. In verse 19, actually verse 16 of chapter 5, it says, I say, Paul says, then walk in the Spirit. In other words, bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the flesh lusts against the Spirit, because we're all going to have to wrestle with these situations. Verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness, basically sexually related sins. Then idolatry. Now, most of us don't have a big glaring idol in our front yard. You drive up to Pacific Northwest, you might see something like that with these totem poles and so on. <laughs> but we don't have things like that. We, have, we park our idols in our garage, you know, our big SUV. Or it might be in our living room, this, this six-foot television screen that we paid thousands of dollars for that uh, we're paying on payments and so on. Uh, now, if you can afford it, fine. If you can't afford it, then it's probably an idol. <laughs> So it's all relative in terms of time. Idolatry, sorcery. How many of you read horoscopes? Hatred. Hatred is where you you don't like somebody. I just don't like you. I can't understand why you're in the same church I am. Because I just don't like you. These things should never be. Contentions, that's just a good old argument. My dad liked to argue, and he was having a good time when he was arguing with somebody. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't say as a put-down, my dad was an engineer, but he, he just loved to argue. He liked to get the best of somebody. And it would drive my mom up the wall. But contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, it might be for an office. It might be be, be yeah, be for a position. But selfish ambitions, dissensions. I know what the church teaches, but here is what I think. Here's how I think things should be explained. It can lead to dissensions and heresies. It talks about other things: envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, party, party, party. And this is what the world is 
saturated with today. But notice at the end of that, that verse there in verse 21, says, of which I tell you beforehand, and I also told you in times past, that those who practice these things that we just talked about will not inherit the kingdom of God because they're not reflecting what God wants to see in his church and in us. But the fruit of the Spirit, now this is what Jesus was talking about in John 15. He says, my Father is glorified when you bear much fruit, and these are the fruits that he's looking for. Love. Not five feet of heaven in a ponytail. <laughs> but unselfish, outgoing concern that, that radiates from you. Joy. It's not a fake, ha, 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 happy, 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 happy type of thing. But you're joyful because you understand the purpose of human life. You're joyful because you understand God's way of life. You're joyful because you understand that Jesus Christ died for you and that God is going to watch out for you. And you have that confidence. Peace. You're at peace with yourself. You're at peace with God. And you're at peace with other people. They, they can't rattle you. Long-suffering. You're patient. My patience is wearing thin. Don't do that again. Well, if we're being called and worked with by God, we can't let our patience wear thin. We need to exercise the fruits of God's spirit, which is long-suffering and patience. Kindness in the way that you say things, the way you do things, the way you deal with other people. There's a sense of kindness there that people will warm up to. If, they, if, this, if the kindness is not there, People are not going to warm up to you. Goodness, where you're focused on good things. Faithfulness, where you're faithful to the truth of God. You're faithful to your word. Gentleness, you can be in charge, but still be gentle in the way that you do things. I think parents have to learn to be gentle with their children. You can be firm from time to time, but you also have to be loving and gentle with them. And we had a sign that we had in the wall of our boy's room when they were growing up, this little boy holding a blanket and kind of looking up with his sheepish expression and said, be patient with me. God's not finished with me yet. <laughs> be patient with me because God is not finished with me yet. I think what we need to realize as ministers and people in supervisory capacities, God is working with everyone. And we don't have to be the one that ultimately has to straighten everybody out. We can give them advice and guidance, but then we need to give God time to work with them. We can be gentle. We can be patient that way. Gentleness, self-control against which there is no such law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. And it's talking about these uh, works of the flesh that Paul was talking about here in verses 19 and 20. We've got to put those things away from us. This is the leaven that we've got to maybe look at at this point in time. Get rid of those things. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit, exercising the fruits of God's Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So God is looking for specific fruits in our lives. And as we strive to 
develop these fruits in our lives individually, then as a church, we're going to reflect these things. And people are going to notice those things. And I think that's going to draw people to the church of God. Third thing we want to look at quickly is that God is calling and training servants. He's calling and training servants. Now, we understand, and I think sometimes we can get carried away, with the promises. Revelation 5.10, where it says, we're going to become kings and priests and reign with Christ on this earth. It talks about Christ is going to reign with a rod of iron. I remember hearing sermons in the past, we're going to get a rod of iron. We're going to straighten people out. (laughs) When you see somebody coming with a rod of iron, which way do you go? The other way. (laughs) Again, we're going to have to deal with firmness. Say, this is the way. Walk you in it. Go back to Zechariah 14. God is not going to allow it to rain on a country that doesn't want to come up to the feast. And hopefully they will begin to put two and two together. Didn't come to the feast, no rain. Hmm. Wonder what's going on here. That was a fluke. Next year, doesn't rain. Other things happen. Hmm. Maybe it wasn't a fluke. But notice the time frame, 12 months, another 12 months, 36 months, and then God tightens things up a little bit more. God is a loving God. He's a patient God. He wants us to make decisions, not to be beat over the head (laughs) with a rod of iron. I think Dwight Eisenhower used the phrase. He said, uh, said, when you beat people over the head with a hammer, that's not leadership. That's compulsion. (laughs) That's abuse. Again, we have to understand the balance here. But God is calling and training servants, people to serve him and to serve mankind. Not just to be in charge, not just to be over people. Mr. Crockett read the scripture in Matthew 20. Again, this is a theme that literally runs through the scriptures. It's a theme that runs through the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 20... Again, it was actually the mother of James and John came to Jesus. And I got these two wonderful boys. And all I'm asking is for the two top positions. That's all. And it didn't go over well with the other disciples. Look, they got their mom up there lobbying for their position. But then Jesus comes back and makes these comments. Verse 25, Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the Rulers of the Gentiles, it's not only the Gentiles, Israelites act the same way. Uh, They love to lord it over them. They like to be in a position uh, in charge of others. And those who are great exercise authority. In other words, they let that authority be felt. I'm in charge. You need to listen to me. Otherwise, the boom is going to fall. Yet Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. This is not what I'm looking for. This is not what I'm looking for in my disciples or in people that are going to reign with me in the coming kingdom of God. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him, let her be your servant. Be your servant. I think in one of John Kennedy's speeches, one of his speechwriters came up with this phrase. He saw a need and tried to fill it, which is not a bad phrase. If we notice the needs of other people, maybe somebody's just a little bit down. And you come up and maybe put your arm around them and say, how are things going? Is there anything I can do for you? 
as opposed to you're in a bad attitude. You need to shape up. Get that frown off your face. <laughs> Those who desire to be great among you, if you want to be in a leadership position, it's not wrong, but we have to have the right reasons. You want to be a servant leader, not a person that's dominating other people. Whoever desires to be first among you, he didn't condemn the desire. He said, let him be your slave. Let that person serve, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Just to illustrate how this is a theme that runs through the Scriptures, go back to Isaiah, a couple of chapters there quickly. Isaiah 42, beginning in verse 1. Just notice this theme. It's not a theme that's just exclusively limited to Jesus Christ. This is a quality that God is looking for, that he wants his church to reflect. He wants us to reflect. God called the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, for a reason. In verse 8 of chapter 41 of Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, and the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken to the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth, and called from his furthest regions, and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. God chose the Israelites to be his servant. He gave them his laws to be a light and example to the world, and they didn't want to do it. And they went into captivity as a result of turning their back on the laws of God that he gave them to set them apart from the world, to set them above the world. Just to give you an example of how these values differ, I was reading an article in the paper this morning about piracy off the Horn of Africa. The Somalis, it said they've hijacked something like, uh, get the figure here, <clears throat> In 2008, pirates seized 42 vessels off the country's 1,900-mile coastline. Since January, pirates have staged 66 attacks, and they are still holding 14 ships and 260 crew members. And these people are looked at in Somalia as heroes because they're bringing money into the country. Millions of dollars of bribes. Now, this is a value system where it's okay to go out and hijack boats, maybe kill a few people, and then get as much money out of them as you can. They, they're saying here is we now have uh, beautiful homes, uh, big cars. We're building new schools and better roads <laughs> with this stolen money. It's a value system that is totally different from the value system that we find in the Bible that says thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. And we have been called to turn this world right side up to teach a totally different set of values. As God's servant people, God called Israel to promote a different set of values that people laugh at today. There's another article in the paper this morning about gay marriage may soon go to Congress to bring this issue to the United States Congress to say it's okay. 
And yet the Bible says this is an abomination to God. I remember listening to this bishop up in New Hampshire that uh, was ordained as a bishop in the Anglican Church about four or five years ago now, because this happened whenever I was in England. And I remember his press conference. He said, look, there's only a few scriptures in the Bible that address this issue. We need to push right through those scriptures and you get to know me. I'm a good guy. Just ignore what the Bible says. Ignore what God says. And we're all equal and we're all okay in God's sight because he's a bishop. This is the world we live in. God called the Israelites to come out of their world, set a totally different example, to be a servant people, serving God. He said, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the descendants of Abraham. You're my servant. I've chosen you and have not cast you away. This is the theme. In Isaiah 40, uh, so we read 41, <clears throat> 42. Let's go to the latter part of verse 44, or chapter 44, where God refers to a man by the name of Cyrus 200 years before he was actually born. He was mentioned in the Bible. Isaiah was writing around 700 B.C. Cyrus came on the scene around uh, the middle part of 500s, around 550 B.C. But God names this person in the Bible. Verse 28, it says, Who says of Cyrus, in other words, God says of Cyrus, He's my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. He's going to do something as part of my plan. Even saying to Jerusalem, You shall be rebuilt. Cyrus of Persian, the Persians defeated the Babylonians who carried the Jews into uh, captivity in Babylon. But God called Cyrus by name 200 years earlier and said, he is going to bring my people back. He's going to give them freedom. So here you have a Gentile king who was a servant in God's plan and God's purpose. Josephus says that Cyrus read these scriptures because Daniel had been in Babylon. They were not ignorant of the Bible. Josephus says that Cyrus read these prophecies and desired to fulfill them. God has a way of working even with unconverted people that they can help bring to pass the plan and purpose that he's working out. The point I wanted to make here is, let's look at one other scripture in Isaiah 43, 42 and 43, these prophecies of Jesus Christ. Excuse me, Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53. <clears throat> The servant theme runs through these chapters, chapters 40 through about 55. That God has a focus on this, this attitude of being a servant. Isaiah 52, verse 13, talking about a sin-bearing servant or a suffering servant, prophecies of Jesus Christ. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high, that is, eventually... Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than any man. So it's talking about Christ came as a servant to suffer. In 53, chapter 53, verse 11, he, that is God, shall see the travail of his soul, that is the soul of Jesus Christ, and be satisfied by his knowledge, my, my righteous servant shall justify many. 
Christ was a servant. Israel was called to be a servant. As Christians, we are called to be the servants of the living God. You know, the foot washing ceremony that we uh, participated in at the Passover, notice in John 13, Jesus was setting an example of a servant. You know, we read in John 13:34. he says, this is a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And he said earlier in that conversation, he washed the disciples' feet, and then asked them a question, verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I did? Do you know what I've done to you? You call me a teacher. You look up to me. You listen to my instructions. You're following me as my disciples. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, as disciples of Jesus Christ, this is the example that we should be following. I was reading something on the Internet the other day and said, most Baptists used to do this years ago. Now very few do. They've lost something. You know, the Pope washes its feet of, I think, six people or something like that. But it's more for show. You know, that, that he's following Christ's example. But Jesus told his disciples, I've washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is he sent... Uh, he who is sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, happy you are if you do them. It is humbling to wash someone's feet, and it's humbling to have yours washed because we don't do that in our society today. Oh, they're going to see my toenails. They're going to see my whatever, <laughs> my blister or this or that or the other thing. You know, it's humbling. But, you know, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt except maybe our vanity. See, Christ set an example. He said, follow in my footsteps. God is calling and training servants, being willing to do things that we might not want to do. Now, Isaiah 58, verse 1, it says, God's servants are to cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. That's not going to be pleasant to do. People are not going to hear those things. And we start telling people one of the reasons our country is going to pot is because we're approving and promoting things such as gay marriages that God condemns. It's not a matter of being better than anybody else or denying anybody else their rights. These are fundamental values. And you go contrary to those values, your society is going to come apart. God says, I'm going to let you reap what you have sown. He lets us make decisions, and then we have to live with those things. God is training servants so that they can serve in God's kingdom and be lights and examples to the world. A fourth quality is faithfulness, being faithful to God, being faithful to his truth, faithful to the teachings of scriptures. You know, we looked in uh, Galatians chapter 5, and one of the fruits of God's Spirit is faithfulness. Being faithful. 
You might just think about this because the theme again runs through the scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the first 10 verses, God told the Israelites, I'm giving you my laws to set you apart from the world. And they're going to be a benefit to you. Don't add to them and don't take anything away. Just just do what I've given you to do. I remember whenever our boys were little, we were teaching them to do various things. I remember one time with uh, our son, Scott. He was just learning how to walk. We were in the living room, and I said, Scott, here's a piece of paper. Would you throw it in the trash in the kitchen? I heard these little feet waddling out there. heard the kitchen door open and clunk. And he came walking back in with a big smile on his face because he had done what I'd asked him to do. If he'd have made a detour and gone into the bathroom and started playing in the water or something like that, (laughs) he wouldn't have been happy and I wouldn't have been happy. (laughs) And we'd have had to correct that situation. God says, look, I'm giving you my laws. Don't add to them and don't take anything away. You can go to Revelation chapter 22, last chapter in the Bible. God says there, don't add anything to this book. Don't take anything away from it. Just do it, please. Because the benefits will be incredible. So we have been called to be faithful. Let's notice the scripture in Jude. And we're going to have to do what Jude is talking about. We're having to do it now. We'll have to do it in the years ahead. Beginning in verse 3. Now Jude is writing toward the end of the New Testament period. The Gnostics were very active at this time perverting the gospel, preaching other things, but claiming to be Christian. It's so, beloved, while I was with you, while I was uh, very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once del- for all delivered to the saints. You're going to need to contend for the truth. Because there's all kinds of scriptures in the New Testament talking about false prophets will come along claiming to be ministers of Jesus Christ. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 11. But they're called ministers of Satan because they're twisting the scriptures and preaching things that are not there. Jesus Christ kept the Sabbath. He kept the holy days. The early apostles kept the Sabbath, kept the holy days. Those things were changed beginning in Rome to make the Christian beliefs appear more acceptable to pagans who didn't want to be associated with anything Jewish. This is what happened. We need to not only understand the scriptures, we need to understand what happened in church history so that we can earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered because it was corrupted. And many people understand that, that write about it. We have got to be faithful with the scriptures and with the truth that God has entrusted to us because it's been perverted down through history. And we saw it happen within the last 15 years. Ideas that were being promoted. They're nonsense when you look at them. But we've got to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered. The final point I wanted to mention has to do with being teachable. You know, are you teachable? Am I teachable? Well, I've been in a church 35 years. 
Nobody's going to be able to tell me anything. God worked with Abraham for 100 years. 35 was only a third or 20 years or 10 years or whatever. This quality of teachability, letting God mold us and fashion us, is a quality we need to develop or maintain or not lose. In in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Again, the Sermon on the Mount, this was what Jesus was talking about at the beginning of his ministry. We could go to scriptures where he talks about similar things towards the end of his ministry. Beginning in verse 3, it says, Blessed, and the word means in the Greek, happy, or to be envied. Blessed, happy, to be envied. It's not just some spiritual thing. To be envied. Are the poor in spirit? It has to do with a humble, teachable attitude. Someone views themselves as insignificant. I'm just, I'm just one of the crew. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are the people that are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. That they're humble. Blessed are those who mourn. They have empathy. They care for other people. They're not so into themselves that they can't identify with someone else. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. And again, has to do with a teachable, patient attitude. Because God can work with people like that. As long as the clay is malleable, God can mold it and fashion it. But, you know, if you're working with clay and it dries out, you throw it away because it, it, it can't be worked with anymore. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can go back to Numbers chapter 12 and verse 3 where it says Moses was meek. He was humble above all other people. And yet Moses was raised in the palace in Egypt. Acts says he was knowledgeable in all the knowledge of the Egyptians. The most powerful nation on the face of the earth at that time. Historians claim he was probably a general in Pharaoh's army. And yet God says he was meek above all people. Where God could work with him, mold him and fashion him. David is described as a man after God's own heart. Let's look at Psalm chapter Psalm 119. Keeping in mind that David is going to reign over the 12 tribes of Israel in the coming kingdom of God. God worked with David, prepared him for the role that he's going to play in the coming kingdom of God. And I think it's instructive to notice the attitude that David had towards God, towards his law. And if David is held up as a man after God's own heart, then we should be, I would hope, uh, instructed by that example. Beginning in verse 1, I want to look at just half a dozen scriptures here as we go through the, the uh, Psalm 119. It says, Blessed are the undefiled or the blameless in the way. Now, you're blameless if you keep the laws of God, who walk in the law of the Lord. They don't look for reasons to get around it. They want to walk in it. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. 
Down in verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord. And this was David's attitude. Teach me your statutes. (laughs) Show me. Show me from your word what you want me to do. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And yet this bishop in Vermont that was ordained as a bishop in the the Anglican church, he said, there's only a few scriptures in the Bible that talk about the, the kind of relationship that I'm in. Let's just push right through those. <laughs> push them out of the way. Get to know me. I'm a good guy. I remember watching the news and his daughter was crying. Oh, my daddy's going to be happy now with his mate of the same sex and be a bishop in the Anglican church. This is what our country has come to within the last 20 years. You know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. This would have been totally unthinkable, totally unthinkable. Not just in local communities, throughout the nation. And this is the direction we're heading today. And someone is going to have to stand up and say, this is not the way to go. This is a sin in the sight of God. Well, we don't believe in God. We're we're on a collision course with our culture. It's going to take a certain amount of commitment and determination to maintain a course through this period of trial. But David said, I delight. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Verse 18. This is David's approach. Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. Why don't we eat unclean foods? Why are certain prescriptions there? Even Bible handbooks are beginning to realize there are medical reasons for these things. It's not a weird idea. But this was David's attitude. Open my eyes that I may see the wondrous things from your law. Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts so I will meditate on your wondrous works. Teach me is really the attitude that comes through. Verse 97, <clears throat> David is going to reign in the coming kingdom of God. This is the, these are the fruits that God is looking for. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day long. You, through your commandments, made me wiser than my enemies. I didn't make the mistakes my friends did because I was trying to live your way of life. Verse 105, your word, God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You ever try and walk through your house at night in the dark? (laughs) Catastrophes happen. You trip over things, stub your toes, break things. But when the light comes on, ah, now I can see the bathroom. (laughs) Now I can see the front door. (laughs) Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I guess the final scripture we could look at is Isaiah 64. Isaiah is talking about an attitude. He's talking about an image, you might say, uh, a perspective that applies on the individual level and applies on a collective level. Isaiah 64 and verse 8, Isaiah says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are the potter. And we are the work of your hand. You're the potter. We're the clay. We are the work of your hand. 
You know, if we let God work with us, mold us and fashion us, if we strive to develop the love that Christ emphasized the night before he's crucified, he says, by this, by this will all men know that you're my disciple if you have love one for another. So if we strive to develop love, we strive to develop the fruits of God's spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If we strive to develop and strive to grow and prepare to serve others, to teach others the truth of God, to teach others the way of happiness that really does work. If we're faithful with the truth of God, we don't compromise. We don't play games. We stay focused on the mission that we've been given. We're faithful to the truth. We, what's the word I want out of Job, or out of uh, Jude? We, we wrestle for the truth, to keep that truth. And if we're teachable, people are going to sense that. They're going to sense a readiness to do things God's way, a readiness to learn, to glorify God. As we go through these days of unleavened bread, let's examine ourselves. To identify any leaven that we might have. But also let's ask God to help us see how we can better exhibit the qualities that we've been talking about. The love, the faithfulness, learning how to work with people, being teachable. Ask God to help us develop those qualities so that we can reflect that we can exhibit the qualities that God is looking for in his church, that Jesus Christ is looking for, the values that he wants to see in his body. It's an incredible privilege to be called to understand the truth of God. But it's also an incredible responsibility, an incredible responsibility to be the lights and the examples that God has called us to be. Let's take some time during the days of unleavened bread to reflect on these things so that we can be the church that God wants us to be.